Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Reddy, but my friends call me Spanners. So, let's be friends. Welcome to the third outing of Meet the Panel, where our illustrious revolving panel turned up armed with content and topics, and then we get to know them a little bit more personally as well. I pretend to care about their lives so you don't have to, and it is a big one today. Today, we have the Will Riker of this space shed, Matt Trumpets is in the shed today, and a legit F1 journo tech man, Matthew Summerfield as well. So this is definitely one you're not going to want to miss out on. Even if you're not a massive fan on of tech time, I'm going to put them on the spot and make them actually explain what all those very long words mean. But we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute, we might be wrong, but we're first. And here he is, the said Will Riker of the Starship Missed Apex Surprise. It's Matt Trumpets. How's it going, Matt? You call that a tire pressure. We are, we're going to be unable to avoid tire chat, aren't we? If when I said bring a topic, <laughs> you, you literally have come with a topic of tires and tire sidewalls. Yes, I have. Right, but trust me, it's 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 all it's all in good fun. I embrace my parodyism. But someone who is a stalwart of F one tech journalism, and I don't care if he gets embarrassed. I think this is this is this. He is the absolute number one source for tech journalism in the entire F one world. It's Matthew Summers, F one Summerfield. Hello, hello, and yeah, I mean twenty twenty four. New cars coming. Got to get excited, don't we? Are they going to be substantially different? Um, well, let's hope they're quicker, at least. Well, okay. Well, do, you, do you think that these current generation of cars are slow? No, I mean, as in they catch up to a certain car that was a bit quicker oh. than everybody else last year. Okay, so we want 19 cars to be quicker and one to stop dead. And in fact, I think I'm just going to ask this on behalf of 
the more casual fans, because of course I know, but in the middle of a regulation set like this, how realistic is it that there's any kind of substantial change from winter to spring? Well, there's obviously some convergence, isn't there? So things that teams have spotted on other cars, things that they've learned throughout the course of the previous season. So there, there will be a chance for teams to catch up. At the start of a regulation set, you get a lot of uh, field spread. So hopefully what we will see over the course of this year and maybe next year is that those teams all starting to, to bunch up again. All right. Um, but I'll, I'll start then by saying um, I have a topic to bring, a tech topic because I don't normally get to quiz you two fine people. So this is to you as well, obviously, Trumpets. Everybody wants closer racing. Summers has just alluded to the fact that there is this kind of hope, and not just a ham hope, a for-the-good-of-the-sport Paul DeResta type hope, that the racing will be closer. I think all F1 fans do wish for closer racing. How realistic is it ever in the tech space that we'll get the kind of close racing that F1 fans really want? Oh, I think it is realistic. I don't think we have to go back too far before we had like, what, five winners in six races? 2012. Like the 2012 yeah, so, so, regulation. So hang on then. That's over 10 years ago. Was it 11 years ago since we last had that kind of anyone can win at any time regs? Yeah, well, I mean, when you're my age, that's not going back too far, to be fair to me. No, that's true. Um, I think the the issue is really... Um, the churn with the regulations, both the power unit and the aerodynamic regulations, the longer you have a set of regulations, the smaller the margins get. And we even saw this at the end of the last season. Uh, I think partially that was due to the penalty uh, for Red Bull. But also, it doesn't take teams that long to figure out sort of what the successful design is. And as Summers has already mentioned, convergence to happen. So then why, Matthew Summerfield, if that is your real name, what, why do these regulations seem to change just as the convergence is happening? Is there a deliberate attempt to go, oh, they're all close again, let's mix it up? Or are they just constantly trying to solve problems and that's just how it happens to have worked out? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the problem that you have in many respects is that because of the way that the regulation sets work is that generally teams abandon development at very different stages. So the front teams start to abandon development very early compared to the, the teams in the midfield and at the rear of the pack. And so you tend to get this point whereby the, the rear teams start to, to close up to the pack purely because they're spending more development on their current car than the, the lead pack are. I mean, obviously there is convergence throughout the course of a regulation set, but towards the end of one, which is what we had in 2021, um, I think that's why we started to see a real pack, you know, the, the pack cut sort of closing up on one another. Uh, but that's not to say that it can't be done. Uh, I think if the regulation changes are handled in the right way, I think you could start to see some teams coming closer together. But as uh, Trumpets has just alluded to, the trouble is, is every time we have a regulation set change, there tends to be the case that the, the, the front teams will go off into the distance and it's more or less one team that does that better than another uh, and you end up with this uh, sort of chase uh, for the next three or four seasons for somebody to get back on, on level terms. And just as they get back on level terms, the cycle continues. <laughs> well, one thing that I would like to address, I mean, there's a myriad of ways to help the pack close up. Uh, but fundamentally, being Formula One, uh, we don't really want to penalize the front runners for being geniuses. 
what we want to do is make it easier for the midfield to catch up quickly. And one of the biggest things and one of the biggest problems, and, and I'm not the only one to point this out, is, is just gardening leave, which has now been baked in by the FIA, but it limits the transfer of knowledge between teams. There's always been gardening leave, uh, but it's sort of been standardized to the point where if I were to hire, as we've seen people going to Williams, Pat Fry, his impact on that team from him being hired to actually making a difference to the team is going to be at least 18 months. And that's problematic when your entire regulation set is only six years. So there's one easy thing to fix for the FIA is make it easier for senior members and for members in general to move between staffs so that the teams can benefit from that knowledge sooner. But just instantly that will create like a wage war. So I suppose it depends whether those people's wages come under the cost cap. Because wouldn't that just be, be like a bidding war if there was no gardening leave summers? People would just be in there with like manila envelopes full of money and like, oh, maybe you can stay in my apartment during the summer. It's got its own pool and it's on in Costa Brava. That's the poshest place I could think of under pressure. There's probably way posher places. Skegness, for example. Would Matt's idea solve the, the issue of catch-up? It would have some limited impact. Obviously, as you've mentioned, the, the other issue is the way that this all butts up against things like the cost cap and the way that the development arc of a, a team already works. Uh, something along the lines of perhaps what McLaren did last season um, it sort of goes against the grain of what we would traditionally expect to happen uh, with with the cycle of development, for argument's sake. But yeah, I mean, it would be it would be beneficial in many ways to be able to have that freedom of movement between staff without a gardening leave. But I do also see the the reasoning behind why that has been a mechanism in the past as well, um, especially with the protection of IP within certain parts of uh, companies, etc. But yeah, I mean. It's just one problem or issue that that Formula One faces and and will always be a moving goalpost. Uh, Well, to me, the the whole reason we have this standardized like it is, is because of the Haas-Ferrari situation. So the issue isn't a Red Bull senior engineer going to McLaren or Mercedes or Ferrari. The issue would be a whole bunch of Red Bull engineers going to Alpha Tauri for the period of like three and a half weeks during the when they do most of their wind tunnel testing and then happily scooting right back to Red Bull afterwards. So this is where the gardening leave came from. I'm just saying a sensible approach to it would allow knowledge Mm. to be spread more rapidly amongst the teams. So the catch up time takes less. But why would you spend all that time like developing these things? Like you're in a little club and you think they're like Derek and Jeff are your busy head engineers and then Jeff gets off with that timeshare in 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 Birmingham City Centre. That's where that's where Summers is from. So he thinks that's posh. If if you know they can be poached that easily, then there's no incentive to to develop hard. So we kind of have to ask ourselves what do we what do we actually want? Because what I think the fans want, all the things that we're looking for, go towards the spec series. And longer reg- regulation periods, regulation sets, mean that things would converge as if it was a spec series. But I suppose the last thing the teams want is to spend all that money just to have it basically be a spec series. 
All right, fine. I'll go first. I don't think it would ever get to that level. Um, and, and Summers has been, uh, if you go back and listen to our tech shows, he's been very clear about this, especially once we started to see pictures of the floor of the Red Bull and stuff like that. I well, listened to all of them. Twice, yeah. twice mm-hmm. I listened to that particular uh, yes. one. That you, Yep. Nope. Yep. That we completely believe you 100%. No. And the, the thing is, just having the knowledge of what another team is up to isn't guaranteed to actually improve your car in the slightest. Doesn't matter to me if I know how Red Bull works its floor. If my suspension is in a place where I can't use that design, that knowledge is effectively useless to me at least for that season. And then even if I do change this design, and I will simply point to a certain formerly pink and now green team has done this several times, allegedly. that if you don't fully understand that concept, then when things do change mid-regulations, when they make tweaks and adjustments like raising diffusers and this and that and the other, then what you get is you you lose all of your forward progress because you don't really understand the concept you're working with. You've just copied it. I, I get where Matt's coming from with the gardening leafing, and I, I do think it is a, it would be a good idea to to revisit that side of things, um, especially because of the way that it was dealt with to prohibit what went on between certain teams. Uh, allegedly, let's say. thank you. Um, we don't want any lawyers involved, do we, Spanners? Um, um, to be honest, with a lot of this stuff, like when it's true, like I don't panic. If someone says something that's, oh, it's controversial, but I reckon it's true, like I just say, go for it. Like Ferrari <laughs> regulations that ended up there in them facing <laughs> for the 2019 season, people always go, oh, you, can't, you can't say that, but it's a thing that happened. So I bring it, I say. Name the team, Summers. You're the only one with FYA accreditation. So you're the only one with anything to risk. Anything to lose, yeah? That's the one. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, the, the gardening leafing needs to be revisited. And hopefully that will be dealt with when we make the shift for 2026. Uh, that's obviously when the next major regulation change is coming into place. And I think that we need to not only address things in 2026 from an aerodynamic point of view, from a power unit point of view, but also from a sporting point of view. Uh, and obviously this falls under that, along with things like the cost cap, because I think teams will have started to prod on that uh, and make inroads that weren't necessarily part of what the FIA wanted the cost cap to have in place in the beginning. So I think all of those sort of things need to be addressed. Ironed um, out, like tax rebates yeah we need to find the the level ground and start again in many ways with 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 certain parts of the regs now you are a very interesting man matthew summerfield and you you do great tech work and when i look at the other f1 journalists in different fields your chosen speciality is objectively harder to do you know all your diagrams the amount of work the amount of research that's involved in it is harder and then Matt, when he does the Tech Times and, and has a really like a great enthusiasm as a fan of the F1 tech and produces Tech Times, the notes for that show, it's a lot harder than what I do, which is like, whose fault do you reckon that crash was then? That, so like, the tech side is so much harder, but I think my stats bear this out as much as you'll see stats from places like motorsport.com and, and autosport. It, it's, the, it's just a less popular angle to Formula One a, that's a shame, but wh- why do you think the tech side doesn't have the same mass appeal as who Leclerc is dating? 
Well, I think it does in some ways. Uh, from a stats point of view, if we're riding a, a piece that has some authority, like when a, a team has uh, done something incorrectly right. or yeah. when there's a new development gone on a car or something along those lines, then yes, we will get a lot of eyeballs on those particular articles. However, as you say, from a, a bulk, the bulk of it, uh, you, you do struggle in terms of generating eyeballs on content. And that is purely down to the fact that um, uh, Formula One fan base is very tribal, I, I, I seem to <laughs> find. And I, I, you, find yeah. you find that in every single sport, don't you? you <laughs> yes, know, of at course. the end of the yeah. day, pe- people follow the sportsman rather than the collective uh, in, in many disciplines. Obviously, there are certain disciplines where that, that is less so, like football or soccer as well rowing or kabaddi yeah (laughs) but yeah i do i do think there is a space for it but as you've mentioned sometimes you have to admit the fact that that space is subject to uh the the particular thing that you're looking at so uh, we have to go hard on certain subjects because we know that those will generate you know a spike in traffic uh and other times you are doing certain things just because it's the run of the mill and and you need to cover that stuff anyway so we were having a in the last show a discussion about why the constructors championship isn't seen as kind of as sexy or as high profile and i think it was uh, alex who was suggesting well, what, what if you make you know more of a more of a, a a fuss about who's on the front left jack? You know, let, let's have a let's have a top trump card of people who are the 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 tire changers and stuff like that. So, do, do you think maybe F one doesn't quite do a good enough job opening itself up to the engineers and getting to know the people who are you know working on the day to day suspension elements, Matt? Do, do you want an interview with suspension Derek at, at McLaren? I would love to hear from Matt Harmon, responsible for a lot of the technical design of the Alpine, for example, where many teams have been copying from. And I know this because I read Summer's articles in motorsport.com. <laughs> I would love to hear that. But, you know, this is an interesting thing because I'm going to bring this up. You two live across the pond from me. And because of that, I watch a different Formula One TV than mm, you do. I mm-hmm. watch F1 TV for my race coverage, which features Sam Collins, yep. who's a really good engineer. They featured Lena, uh, uh, Tina Gade, who is the sister of Lena Gade, also an engineer recently. And they and with Alex Brundle being on there too, they get into some fairly oh, technical that's... content. And I, I do really quite enjoy that. So I get some of that. That's from the TV coverage. And that's F1 TV. That's F1 TV. Now, I know you do get a Ted's notebook. And I've always, one of the things that I've loved about Ted when I've been able to see the show is that he will oftentimes do that thing that I like to do, which is to go back and say, here are all the teams. What are the questions we had about the race? Can mm. I get some answers to them? And aside from his proclivity for just naming everything a barge board, that's an he old will get meme. into some more technical stuff. That is a dead meme. <laughs> I could. Well, but it's been a while since I've seen it, so okay, I don't have okay. any new ones to go off of. I think I think the F1 TV and Liberty could make more. Yeah, that's interesting. It is Ted, isn't it, Who's who does a lot of the tech. But I think because right, you, you can opt out of Ted's notebook because it's you know, after right. the race, and they, they throw to him every now and then. But in the pit lane, he kind of gets used 
as a pit lane reporter rather than as a out and out tech reporter. So you know he he's the eyes and ears down on the ground, which is really valuable. But for example, Sky Sports have Bernie Collins there for the strategy element of it. Maybe they need a Matthew Summerfield alongside. Maybe you can be their their Sam Collins. So maybe if they had a bit more of a, a leaning to to those that tech angle. But you don't really have lots of opportunity during the race to go, ah, that's because the front suspect... I mean, what, do you think you would have good impact uh, or good uh, input live during a race or is it all before and after? I, I personally think that there is space for it during the course of a broadcast. And I, I know that Mark Hughes worked alongside Sky Sports for a while in, in the commentary box with Crofty and, and Brundle to offer support uh, in that respect. And I, I think that might be something that uh, they've perhaps missed recently is having that information fed to them uh, in terms of knowing mm. some of the more technical details uh, obviously, Brundle is very, very good at that side of things, um, but there is more room, uh, as Matt's mentioned, to have somebody on board perhaps that will help there. Well, it it would help. There's a lot going on. Like I know when Alex Brundle has done commentary in the past, it just as a driver, he's very into the technical side, so he will give insight. But th- I think the larger issue about having that sort of commentary in general is is tech itself has a bit of a learning curve to really appreciate. And if you normalize, if you normalize that coverage and you start explaining those things when everybody, even your casual fan is watching, then you increase everybody's appreciation of what's really happening on the racetrack. And it's more incredible than most people know. Or you tune into Tech Time on Missed Apex podcast. Now, I've got a request from you two Tech Time people. If I promise to behave myself, please can I be the voice of the dum-dums who don't always understand everything on the 2024 Tech Time episodes? Of course. Oh, no, that was that took too long for him to massive, say that. There was like a pregnant pause there, wasn't that was, there. That was Zoom delay. That was Zoom delay. I'm very welcome. Matt will still be in charge. Matt will still be in charge. But a lot of the time I'm, I'm producing those anyway. So I'm just going to be there so I can occasionally go. Uh, Matt, I don't know what a phalange is. Please tell someone to stop saying tire squirt. Uh, would you like us to explain anti-squat and anti-dive to you? I regret it already. You are listening to a kind of special tech time-ish edition. Yes, we're going to be talking about tech subjects, but this is part of our winter content where I'm bringing, like, like Spanner's Arc, I'm bringing my panellists on two by two, armed with subjects to talk to us about. So, of course, Chris came in with the very, very popular Corner Names podcast. Please stop emailing me for part two. We are going to do a part two. I asked for 20 people to get in touch. It it has, I think it's ticked over 300 at the moment, and I'm going to stop counting. So please, please, please stop. Uh, We are going to do it towards the end of February. Before the start of the season, there will be a Corner Names part two, and it will be your fault. Of course, we also did the World uh, Constructors' Championship show, somewhat less successful, but it was a brave effort. We tried to make people care about the World Constructors' Championship, and I I don't think, judging by the comments, that we succeeded. But my favourite part of all of these bits of content has been getting to know the panel. So towards the end of the show, we'll veer away from Formula One. And for example, I might look at Summers and go, there's a little trophy in his background. He's, He's very proud of it. 
So we might chat a little bit of golf and living on a windy, stray island with uh, Matthew Summerfield. And we'll talk a bit of trumpeting with Matt Trumpets and find out how he earns his whiskey money. Now, Summers has come armed with an a, a topic which you're going to enjoy, which you will enjoy. I demand it. But I'd like to extend an invitation first. So, are you a keen iRacer? Because we are about to start Season 8 of our iRacing tournament. So we have six events over six months. Each has three races, racing single-seater races on iRacing. If you're interested, get in touch, racecontrol at mistapex.net, or you can click the entry link in the show notes below. We charge 25 quid for the whole season, and each event includes a couple of practice nights as well. So you'll be on Discord with the likes of me and Matt. Have a chat with us. Have a race with us. You don't have to be good. I'm going to make that clear. If you had to be good, you wouldn't get me and Matt on, for, for one thing. But we, all we ask is that you sort of practice enough to just be safe and not take anyone out. And, and, if, and if it makes you feel any better, there isn't a single person in that entire grid who hasn't wiped me out of a race. I'm like a magnet to people wiping me out of the race. So if you want to have a fun, chilled out, but taken, you know, semi-seriously and done professionally iRacing series, then get in touch. Race control at mistapex.net. All right, Summers, what are you coming at us with? What tech delights have you brought in your hamper? Well, kind of the, the theme for what we were talking about here was how we might fix Formula One. Yeah. And one of the things that I have banged a drum about for a number of years now is DRS. Yes, right. This has got to be one of the most controversial topics in Formula One. And the the, the thing is, I I end up defending DRS because I am older than I care to admit. And I've watched an awful lot of non-DRS races in Formula One. <laughs> Obviously, like, like all of us here, I've watched uh, much more non-DRS races than DRS races. I, I remember the problem it was solving, and I remember how much of a almost a, a relief it was when it first came in, but now it's been much derided as being too artificial. So too artificial in a a sport that has been constructed completely by people and made up from the ground up. So I will remind everyone in the context of this chat that Formula One cars don't fall naturally from, from trees. They aren't picked from a field or hunted in a savanna, yet DRS is the thing that's too um, artificial. So, Summers, I'm, I'm currently, I'm understanding of DRS. I'm a friend of DRS. Are you? Yeah, I mean, as, like yourself, I find that I constantly have to defend DRS uh, mm. as a mechanism to engage in an, an overta overtaking yeah. situation. Like yourself, I'm a uh, a person that's You're had old. experience <laughs> prior to DRS. Yeah, basically I'm old. <laughs> and we, we know the pain uh, of mm. watching lap after lap after lap after lap after lap of somebody following somebody and being yeah. unable to overtake. Yeah, well, I mean, we're not saying DRS is perfect, but if you think DRS trains are boring, buckle up because non-DRS trains are even more boring. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with non-DRS trains is that 
you really need somebody in front of you to have a failure for you to then overtake them. Uh, that, that's kind of how it used to happen in, in sort of the 80s and 90s. But um, in terms of DRS, I, I understand why people have a massive bugbear with it. When it first came in, it was heralded as, as more of a, you know, a sticking plaster for a problem that we would resolve we kick the can further down the line and we'd sort yeah. that out with a, a with a new set of regulations further on. Um, and I think people kind of accepted that to start with, but now we are over 10 years into using DRS and there looks like no sign of that actually going away. When did it start? So, when did it start, DRS? 20, 2011. Is that it? Because we Feels had like it's older um, than that. the F-duct in F duct in 2010, which was sort of the precursor to, to DRS, it kind of opened up that channel in the mind of everybody as to what po- could possibly be uh, in terms of an overtaking aid. But when was KERS part of Formula One, that energy button where you could press the button and get a little bit of a boost? When was that? Two, 2009. 2009. Not, not all teams had it in 2009. Oh, that's right. That not everyone could have it. And how long did KERS last as like a button? 6.67 seconds from memory. Oh, I meant in seasons. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, in seasons. I mean, like, how long Kurs lasted until 2013, right. and then the new power units came in in 2014. Oh, that's it, and it's And gone. obviously that brought with it a, a new energy recovery system. Let's find out where, where Trumpets is on this, because we're, we're both being DRS apologists. Well, the, where I am is there's perfect and there's good. Mm. And I think DRS falls into the good category because it does make more racing possible and especially it reduces the delta in performance needed to overtake someone in front so you know we talk about other series one of the best things about indycar it's a spec series but you have amazing racing because there's not big differences between the cars so overtaking happens but also their entire rule set which we were talking about earlier, makes essentially it almost outlaws defensive driving. If they think you're driving in your mirrors, you'll get a penalty for that. Oh. So it puts the emphasis on overtaking rather than defending. Now, Formula One is a different sport. I'm not arguing it should go that far, but you know I'm going to sit here and, and suggest that everyone at the FIA sit up and pay attention when Summers explains, which he will do right now, how DRS could be even closer to perfect than it currently he, he, is. He will explain that, but not because you told him to. He, he wants to. He would have done that regardless. He would have yes, done it anyway, correct. Matt. Yeah, in a different timeline, this <laughs> conversation never happened, and I'd already, ma- I'd already made my point. <laughs> um, yeah, he, I mean, basically, I, I've kind of alluded to the way that I think Formula One should perhaps take a look at using DRS differently for a number of years now. Uh, And my approach to it is that most people deride DRS because it is something that cannot be defended against. Mm. So a driver can't survive an attack via DRS for very long uh, unless you're in a, a train because obviously then everybody has the DRS. And this, I believe, would resolve the problem of the DRS train as well. In my opinion, there should be more strategy to how you deploy DRS. Now, there's two ways that you could do that. You could either have a timed implement or you could have a number of presses number of implements presses, yeah. and use it as, a, a, as an attack or defense. And that way, then, the drivers themselves can decide how much that they want to use DRS. It would 
reduce the amount of DRS trains because you can't simply just keep pressing the button because you've only got a certain number of min- minutes, seconds, or mm. numbers of presses per race. Uh, me, me and Trumpets have had a discussion about this in the past. You could extend that beyond just the race and have it over the race weekend, and oh, then you bring in even more strategy. But I do think that there is a mechanism for DRS that could offer better racing, not only from the fact that you then take away the fact that people think that this is just a, a, a Band-Aid solution, but also from the fact that it is now defensible by the lead driver who's been attacked by another. And and for me, that would open up some more possibilities. I Okay, so the limited amount of presses almost makes it like a boost button that you can you can press when you want. So this push to pass so obviously we could create the same effect with an extra store of electrical energy so what you're basically creating is curs but with the drs and you can do it a limited number of times now remember the rule here on missed apex podcast me doing go-karts or sim racing counts as exactly the same as being a formula one driver i will hear no argument against it but we were doing formula renault 3.5 in our last season of the Mist Apex iRacing Cup, Matt, and we had eight presses of it over 16 laps. I, what did you make of that? Because I I got a little bit frustrated with it where, you know, we were kind of just making progress or I'd overtaken a car that was not really in a fight with me, but I'd found myself behind. I overtook them and then they would use their DRS to come back at me or they would use the DRS to pointlessly kind of cling on to a position when they were all over the place. And you go kind of go, no, let's work together. Let's save our our DRS presses, and then, you know, you get later in the race and then you come up against someone who didn't have to fight through the field and they've got infinite DRS presses. What, what did you make of that, that system? Well, I'm not sure uh, in my racing with it that it ever made that much difference to me. I mean, Lee's no, you were in the crash barrier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, the, the three and a half, if we'd had it in the F3, it would have been perhaps more interesting from a strategic point of view. But uh, I... I I, I think when you're talking about Formula One drivers who are professionals combined with, combined with people who are strategy engineers, I think you're going to get a, I think you would see some pretty interesting um, configurations of it in terms of, especially if you drop the rule that you have to be within a time limit of the person ahead of you. Oh, yeah, you'd have to, you'd have to, yeah. If we do that, then suddenly, my choice to use DRS is going to be based on more than just, am I trying to overtake that person ahead of me? The other thing that I think has really gone missing for the most part, we see it some is in the early days of DRS, they would, they would be very free with changing the limits of how long it was and where the things were taken. It, it, it's much more entrenched now. So sometimes when it works out right, it winds up giving you really good racing. But it seems like they're not as, I would use the word nimble, about making adjustments during the race weekend. And I don't really know why that is. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in the next three years. 
Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Shall I give... Shall I bake your noodle even further? Let's do it. In Please 2011, do. and I think it was 2012 as well, we had unlimited DRS in qualifying. Um, the, the reason I believe that uh, DRS was taken away from a, uh, an unlimited version was because Red Bull were able to go through 130R with the DRS. RS wide open oh. and nobody else could, but everybody else started to try it and suddenly <laughs> realised how much downforce that the Red Bull actually had. And the following season, it was totally binned. So, yeah, there was a mechanism behind why it was done, uh, but I do miss that. It was another. But what? Hang from on, a why? Strategy point. Why, why? Why do you miss that though? Because surely, if everyone can just open it all the time, it's the same as it not being open all the time in qualifying. Well, I don't know. I think there was nuances in the the driver's abilities to be able to use DRS in certain parts of the circuit that other drivers can't because either because of their skill level, let's say, or because their car had more downforce and they could run uh, into and out of certain corners that other drivers couldn't. So I think it added some a, a different element to things. And also it meant that the teams had to rethink how they set their car up for qualifying and the race because obviously the DRS then had different meanings whether you were on unlimited DRS in qualifying or whether you were uh, you know set up for for a race scenario uh, so i was actually cuz i had advance warning that you wanted to talk about this this is one of the things that that i've been thinking about a lot and i'm just curious to get your take and oh, i guess spanners too what would you think of giving a timed amount of increased fuel flow without changing the absolute amount of fuel that you could bring on board? Yeah, I mean, obviously, if we think back to party modes and those sort of scenarios, I, I think we were operating a, in a similar realm to that in the past. Um, I would also argue that you could probably do similar things in terms of the energy recovery systems as well, because we have to remember how mature this uh, power unit regulation set currently is. We've yeah. This will be its 10th year. I know we, we introduced these power units in 2014. We're now in 2024. 20, um, we're not going to see the back of them until 26. I still think there's a huge amount of margin for uh, in the development side of things, although obviously we're under certain caps. Um, but I do think that there is some margin there to unleash the power units in certain respects, especially during qualifying. I mean, for me personally, qualifying should be about the, the car being at its most alive during the the course of a race weekend it should basically be you know right on the edge the driver should be throwing it around 
like like it you've never seen before uh but we don't tend to see that quite as much as we used to because the the drivers are thinking about reliability concerns they're thinking about other sessions they might be involved in uh my favorite topic sprints being one of those um you know and and all those sort of things so uh, I do think I do do think though that there are, there is margin for the power units to be to use be used a little better. Well, the thing that I wanted to get to, the thing that that I that struck me is limiting this to the internal combustion side. So you could use more fuel for your internal combustion, but you had no more fuel you could use during a race. So as as we all know, no Formula One car goes in with their tank full. So you would have to make a trade-off between how much fuel do you put in for to be able to use the button for the maximum amount of time versus how much advantage do you gain by having a lighter car. And, and I, I, I think that could lead to some very interesting strategic choices and, and racing. But th- that, that was what I was thinking. So you're thinking like they can um, fuel save in the race. So they're like, you've done the fuel saving, now you can press the magic button now. Uh, yeah, they already do that, but they don't oh, have yeah. extra fuel flow to right, use. Right, They're right. limited. Is it, is it like 100, 105 now? Yeah. I, I, I will throw a, a, a monkey in the wrench or a monkey wrench in the works. Thanks for not saying to, spanners in the works. I appreciate uh, yeah. that. Uh, in as much as the engineers will try to subvert that situation as much as possible. Uh, purely because if you think of pit stops in the past, at one point we used to think, oh, yeah, there's loads of pit stops in this race because, uh, you know, we didn't have a more sound understanding of what that actually meant in terms of uh, overall race time. Uh, And I think that's where they might be limited in thinking, well, we won't put the fuel in because we won't be able to make up that deficit that we'll use or spend with the extra fuel on board for those power laps or those you know, those seconds during a power power lap. So uh, th- there might be a, a good uh, mechanism to, to, to put that in place, but I think you have to uh, really be quite strict in how you would apply it in order to get the best from it. Um, and again, then you're adding regulations. And as we know, the more regulations you add, the more controversy you end up with because teams then start to push the boundaries of what those regulations actually mean. And that means more DTS viewers and more sprint races right this is exactly what you want i'm actually i i want to follow up a little bit more if i could when you mention unleash the power unit like which restrictions are you looking at now that you that you would like to see gone or maybe just gone during qualifying well as you mentioned i think that there there is a mechanism whereby you could actually have a, a different arrangement for qualifying than you have in the race because the power units are so mature now and they are so utterly reliable that you could push them a little bit beyond the boundary of where we we currently lie. Uh, So you could perhaps say during qualifying, well, you've got so much more energy recovery system. You know, you can use so much more power through the MG UK as we're proposing for 2026 anyway, um, and so on and so forth, just to get more out of the, the, the power unit and the car for qualifying over uh, a race condition. I mean, that they, they are obviously doing that in some respects anyway, because they'll meet their usage during a race. But I do think there's more available if we just push the, the boundaries on, on the regulations a little bit to open or free things off, seeing as we're so far into a regulation set on, on the power unit. Oh, well, I mean, the news coming from Autosport is... 
the power units, and I know you read all of these, so I can't. Apologies, I don't know who wrote this. Hang on, was it you? There, <laughs> there was an Autosport article saying that from now on, F1 power units should be more road relevant, and I'll, I'll try and find that whether that was a quote from. I think that was from from F1 rather than you know um, you know Derek in the in the tech journalism department. But I have some issue with that, especially with road relevance going purely towards electric. Being road relevant surely just means an electric power unit. And why Why is road re- relevance solely pushed on the engine? Why not boot space? Why not having um, enough room for your golf clubs? Why, why don't the drivers have to put in one of those three-point safety things of a child seat? Yeah, that's road rele- relevance, isn't it? Imagine that, Verstappen and Hamilton having to strap in a four-year-old. <laughs> Four wheels in a child seat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, he, every, and it slow things down. <laughs> every, everyone gets a toddler that just will not sit in the child seat, has some, somehow decided they won't be in a seated car today. So road relevance is it's just an odd one for me, you know. Is there is there a plan to market cars with infinite downforce that can drive upside down in tunnels? Like it's, it's a nonsense to say the sport should be road relevant in just one specific area this this is the problem i i don't understand where road relevance has any tangible connection to to formula one uh, yes to world endurance cars yes to rally in some respects and to other series um but for formula one although there is a trickle down in terms of the technology transfer over time i don't believe that there is realistically a connection i mean when, when was the last time that you went out on the road in an open wheeled car with downforce um and a thousand horsepower Wait, you know, it, do, well hang on it, does that include my nova in 1998 because it did have a spoiler my my lime green Vauxhall nova how much downforce was it pushing? Oh, that, oh that loads! Spoiler? Really stable rear end, yeah. but that was that was mostly due to Fat Eddie, who'd always sit in the back. Did it have a thousand horsepower as well? It yeah. did not have a thousand horsepower. It had maybe like sixty. <laughs> yeah, so so there you go. I mean, road relevance to me and Formula One. Yes, there is some kinship in terms of trickle down over a long period of time, but certainly not uh, a direct correlation. And I don't think that regulations should be framed with that in mind uh, because. In reality, that there is very little to connect to, and that's an issue. I think um, if you ask me about road relevance, I think that suspension, really, especially active suspension, would be where we saw a lot of it. And if you ask me to design a regulation set that would have road relevance, here's what I would tell you: torque vectoring and front axle recovery, which were binned by the FIA and. Yep. FOM when those were brought up and talked about as as a mechanism to be brought into future regulations because they didn't fit the the bill uh, of Formula One. So, as you mentioned, there is no real direct connection between the two. I have found the article. I'm a hero. It is by your friend John Noble, and it is from the FIA. Then this statement. It's the FIA's head of single seater matters, Nicholas Tombazis, who says, "Did I say that right?" Tombazis. I like it. It's a good name. Uh, says, what is critical is having rules that offer value to manufacturers. The step for 2026 is defined, but what we do in the next step afterwards is up for discussion. There are a lot of options still on the table, whether it's more sustainable e-fuels, whether it's hydrogen, shut up, in which case we have a lot of work happening in the FIA or whether it's more electrical. That is quite a worrying statement because that is just knocking r- racing 
down the ladder in terms of of priorities. And to to be honest, if he's saying he's looking at hydrogen as in a when's the next regulation set after this one in like eight years time, if he thinks that the hydrogen is going to be road relevant and he's in charge, to me, that's worrying. I think it's a blanket appeal statement, though, just to say, look, we're looking at all these areas and okay. we know that these things are being looked at in terms of, of road relevance. So we have to have some of that incorporated into our, you know, That's development. He, he does mention yeah. all a, a lot of different ones. So he isn't specifically saying hydrogen, to be fair. But even like this move to sustainable fuels is driving me mad because you're not going to have a road network fueled by sustainable fuels. No, there isn't the mechanism in place to do so at the moment. But I do think that Formula One has led in many respects uh, for that side of things. But again, it's something that I think you're kicking the can down the line and they're they're putting out a statement because they know that a regulation set has been formed for 26 and now we're really starting to think about the next set of regulations beyond that, which will probably be 2030, 2032. So I, I mentioned suspension. If I'm a manufacturer... Just like uh, when I come over for Missed Apex, I need some connection to be able to write things off of my taxes. You have to, as the FIA, give the manufacturers a nod and enough because let's face it, without manufacturer support, the sport looks a lot, lot different and maybe not nearly as fast or fancy. It is a bit of a devil's bargain. I'll give you this. In reality, I'm I'm, I'm actually going to bring up... Um, a long time ago, I rented a car that was a hybrid. It was the first hybrid car I ever drove, and you could choose to do regeneration on braking. And yeah. the first time I did that, the thing just about <laughs> broke my neck. Was it a Prius? No, it was a Honda version yeah. of a Prius. Um, uh, but yeah, essentially the same idea, not as refined. This is a long, long time ago because, of course, I'm very, very old. And so now you <laughs> look at how... So much time and, and money is spent by Formula One teams working out this brake by wire stuff in the rear where the regeneration happens. A lot of the software and the energy management software, and I think probably wiring looms and stuff like that too, really does have a fair amount of relevance to road cars, which is why we see it included in the sport. But I, I, to me, this is just like a public relations gesture yes. by the FIA oh, I think right, you're right. now. Yeah, I think you're right, yeah. We're just going to include enough of it to keep you happy so you can continue <laughs> to to spend money in the sport and get away with it with your various relevant national tax authorities. Yeah, so I, I think you're right. Like I've just read the whole article there while, while you're talking, and it does look like he's trying to appeal to everyone because you have to mention hydrogen or you get the nut jobs who are wrong about it. Um, and, and if you want proof of that, please check out the YouTube comments below for, for validation that the hydrogen <laughs> crew are still pouring in there. Um, but yes, he's, he's clearly just trying to pe- please everyone. And I, I think this is the issue to me, Matt, is that a lot of this really is lip service. A lot of the net zero stuff looks a bit wishy-washy to me. A lot of the sustainable fuels feels like... What's the word? Is it green? It's not greenwashing, but it's... It's it's there or thereabouts. I mean, a lot of the sustainable stuff that was low-hanging fruit has been nixed on safety reasons. So so you would have reason to believe that. But but things like uh, the 100% biofuels, that doesn't really have a huge application in individual passenger cars. But if I'm Petronas 
or if I'm Shell, I might be selling some version of that as aviation fuel because there it does have an application or as marine fuel. That's air relevance. That's not road relevance. But <laughs> understand that these big fuel petroleum companies are mm. engineering partners with these teams. So, yeah. So, so like, I, I, at least I find that an arguably useful connection. Okay, Summers, I'm unburdening you of such concerns. I'm unburdening you of, of road relevance or pretending to be environmentally aware whilst driving race cars on planes that zigzag across the world as if your flight path is stitching the continents together you know as a as a as a whole repair it's like darning a sock isn't it the the flight path of the f1 schedule but okay i'm gonna unburden you of all all of that how do we actually un unleash the power units as i've already mentioned I, I think you have to basically boost what we currently have um from the 2014 power unit we've developed you know a, mm. a, a great deal uh, from what we had when they first arrived, certainly uh, from Renault's point of view, which exploded <laughs> every 30 seconds. Yeah. Um, uh, and my biggest argument with the fact of what we're doing for 2026 is trying to encourage new manufacturers to come on board. Uh, Formula One is a bit of a closed shop in many respects, mm -hmm. and we've only got so many teams. We've already uh, obviously had the likes of Andretti say that they want to come on board. They're now trying to renegotiate with Renault. Um, there's talks of obviously other other manufacturers coming in and to 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 the to take over, like Ford uh, with with Red Bull. But the current power units themselves, everybody mentioned that there was going to be a massive pain to to get on board with what that current technology mm. was. Honda, yes, they might have taken a little longer, but they also came in without the knowledge that the other manufacturers had previous to that for three years that they'd been developing those regulations. So I'm not so sure that there was a problem with the current set of regulations in terms of being able to develop a, a, this type of power unit. So I think what we're getting in 2026 is something a, a little bit watered down in many respects from a technological point of view compared to what we, we have now. Uh, and might not necessarily be a bad thing, uh, but from my point of view, I think because we've had these re these regulations for sh such a long period of time, I think there's some headroom to be able to take the the fuel flow and take the energy recovery systems to to another level. Um, uh, but you know, w will that happen over the next two years? Probably not, unfortunately. I would settle for an agreed upon mechanism for equalizing the horsepower. But then, what's the Equal point? What's well, the point for of having teams that have fallen behind, I, I think it's pretty valid, actually, because we have a large discrepancy right now amongst the power units, which we did not previously have before the cap came into place. W would I argue here that somebody likes a certain <laughs> team that has a power unit that's a long way behind the rest? <laughs> is, that well, affecting, no, is that affecting anyone's driver that they're a fan of in particular? Well, I, I don't think it's affecting the driver so much, but it's affecting the team. And I think more importantly, and the reason I do bring it up is because this is already under discussion amongst the power unit manufacturers is, is a way to open these doors when, 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 a, when anyone, you know, if I was Ferrari, I would have appreciated that. And what was it? 2018, 2019. 
would would have would have been nice to be able to 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 fix some stuff then. Okay, well, well I'll grant you your wish. Equal, we'll find a way for all equal uh, horsepower, as long as we also have equal downforce points. What's the what's the difference? Why 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 don't we limit or equalize the amount total amount of downforce teams can have? Summers, why why are engines different from aero development? They're not. The, I mean, I I, I, <laughs> I don't I I don't agree per se with where, where Matt's going. I agree with the fact that there needs to be some development allowed. Um, I don't think it needs to be completely unrestrained. But the problem is, is that fundamentally this is an issue that Renault have carried for a very long time because they were so far behind the curve and they had ample opportunity to catch up just as Red Bull, uh, sorry, Red Bull, Honda did. Mm-hmm. Uh, they managed to overcome these problems uh, in a shorter period of time than Renault did effectively. So I, I do think that, yes, there should be some allowances are made, uh, especially for, for Renault who have found themselves adrift in some respects. Um, but they did have ample opportunity to do this before things were locked down. Hmm. Hmm. I have to admit, I'm still struggling to understand why people have this perception of an unfairness with engine development when maybe some teams just did a better job than others. But there isn't that same thing with aero or or suspension. Sorry, I'll translate for Birmingham for you, Summers. Aero. Well, I mean, the issue I would take here is if I've done a terrible job on my aero... I can bring developments to my car all season long and try and fix mm, it. Is that Mercedes, for example? If I show up having finally developed a reliable powertrain, and everybody else developed an unreliable one that, when they fix their reliability problems, puts them twenty, thirty horsepower ahead of me, well, I, I'm I'm beyond. Uh, this is within. I would say you're beyond at that point the bounds within which you want power units because it's it's okay to have a less powerful unit if it has advantages other places. And I think this is part mm. of the conversation that the manufacturers are having. But at a certain point, you're just behind and no and and you should be allowed to fix it just in the interest of should we call it fair ish play? Mm. Well, that's a you really know. interesting point you brought up with the reliability summers. And this is a conversation we've had without you. Tell us if we're you know, being insane here, like some of the teams will have basically baked in a performance level that the rest of the parts they can't handle. The easiest example would be because it overheats. And if it overheats, you then have to bring back the performance artificially to work within your, your thermo capacity. But then you can do a reliability-only upgrade, which is the cooling because cooling stops it overheating, and that's a reliability thing. But then what you've actually done is unlocked that performance that you that you baked in. So you can front-load the performance, and then you can do reliability things. And as an engineer, that grates me, because reliability is performance. Yeah, I mean, we saw this heavily during the back end of the V8 era when those power, those power units engines uh, were frozen, and teams or manufacturers could come along and make reliability changes mm. to, to their engines and suddenly they had a lot more performance yeah, so yeah, it's a sim it's a similar sort of thing formula one has always had that that sort of baked into it and uh, that it is there for for uh, some of the manufacturers to take advantage of that right now but not to the level that they previously had yeah. and i think that's where trumpets believes that there should be a little bit more freedom <laughs> uh to allow for for renault to to make some 
some yardage back up on that. If you want to recreate this at home, overclock your your CPU in your PC and then let it explode and then get a replacement CPU at your own expense. <laughs> but this time, in, uh, get a new uh, cooling fan, like a bigger capacity cooling fan. And then you'll find when you overclock it, it, do- it doesn't blow up. So that's the kind of thing where we're talking about here. Uh, Matt, last bit on you. And then I think we want to end on active aero. And we might not have time for tyres due to my waffling. Sad. Uh-huh. And, and you want to be a regular participant on Tech Time. I was, it's not going well, is it? My petition. <laughs> vote now. <laughs> keep spanners out or keep spanners in. You vote there, now. There, there's your poll for next week. Yeah. All right. All right. Are we done? Okay. Active aero. Oh, hang on. We press a button. It makes a noise. There's a graphic. Oh, it's a tyre. Ironically, is the graphic I picked there. Uh, Active Aero. Are we ever going to get it, Summers? It's the. It was the Williams, wasn't it, in the eighties that had the Active Aero. Um, that's what people should Google. Mansell's Williams. That was active oh suspension. suspension. Oh, right. Maybe I shouldn't be on the tech times. Although technically, that was Aero because it gave them ah, the perfect ride height. I was right. I was wrong, and now I'm right. What a roller coaster, Summers. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I, I do think this is an area where Formula One could find some low-hanging fruits from an efficiency point of view. So uh, we, we're obviously talking about the, the green side of Formula One earlier on, and we're talking about the, the efficiency level of uh, of the cars themselves. So um, if we did venture down the active aerodynamic routes, uh, and I'm not talking about DRS here, I'm talking about other areas of the car that obviously have aerodynamic surfaces that that are movable um I, I do believe that that would offer the team's new ventures in terms of understanding how to get the best from their car from both mm. a downforce point of view from a drag level point of view and certainly drag that that, that is where there would probably be the the biggest gains um I know there's been discussions around this in the past and there'll be discussions about it again in the future uh, but there's certainly a, a wide scope uh, for, for Formula One to, to take this on board. And it would actually add some road relevance. So that would t- be a tick in the box for the FIA because I do believe that is an area that the uh, the road manufacturers will start to, to head towards over the, 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 the forthcoming years. I'm trying to imagine it in my head. So they use all their aero to fly around the corner, stuck to the ground, giving them extra uh, grip. And then you get on the straight and it's like a transformer. It's like watching Optimus Prime as all the aero folds away and tucks in. I was going to use a transformer as my uh, mechanism nice. to explain this situation and for you, Spanners. Did so, you like you my... Go. Did you, you've, you, got it, you've got it straight away. Did you like my transformer transforming noise? Yeah. I, I think it was a, a very good impression. Fine. Better than your... Brummy impression, no, at least. No, it's not. My Brummy's perfect. I'm not getting involved in judging <laughs> UK accent <laughs> competition. Because uh, if you imagine Active Aero, you're like, well, it could take many forms. The simplest and most obvious one would be just stalling your wings on the straights. But then you could run it the other direction and use it both for balancing and increasing braking performance as well in, into braking zones. And so how do you manage that? And then if you're going to use ride height... It's a huge sales well, going up at the end of the straight. Well, yeah. I mean, you can use ride height to artificially transfer more weight to the rear of the car so that you have better traction, say, out of a corner. There's a lot of different things that could be done with it. 
and what I wish I had right now, and I don't know, maybe maybe Summers has a, a better beat on it because he, he's uh, closer to the to the journalists that cover it on a day to day basis, is what exactly the FIA, and I presume you know, with the input of the teams and Liberty, is thinking about when they say active arrow. Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's going to be the f- the first iteration of it will be something more minor. We- we'll see uh, certain areas of the car have an ability to to, to be able to be movable uh, and have certain degrees of freedom. I think the most interesting concept uh, that might be underplayed in some ways would be cooling, because if you think about apertures uh, being open on the car now, that they- that's just drag uh, that we have to overcome. So if you close those apertures down, then you're, you're suddenly uh, developing something that's much less draggy. Um, so for me, cooling would be one of the priorities. Uh, but I do think there will be an expansion. that They'll start small uh, and move outwards from there. I think it would take, you know, sort of a 10-year period for us to get to, to where we would expect to see it from a science fiction point of view, uh, if you want to put it that way. Uh, you know, Spanish transformer for argument's <laughs> sake. I don't, I don't need the the noise again though. Um, <laughs> spoiling his fun. Um, so yeah, I think it'll be a bit of a drawn out thing, uh, but I do think that there's very good areas on the car that it could be used to, to make gains uh, and be visible to people. This is the thing as well. If we're going to do it, it needs to be visible to people. Otherwise, what's the point? It needs to have an impact and it also needs to have an impact for the driver. You know, if he's not got any control over it or it doesn't mean anything to him, then why why are we doing it? Mm. Um, and that that's part of the optics, uh, I think, of what we need to, to see from it. Within the cost cap summers, this, this sounds like a development and cost nightmare. Are you, are you well, advocating I've... for it or against it? I've not quite figured it out. I'm advocating for it. I mean, don't don't you want to see something a little bit different? Um, you know, for, from a, a future standpoint, we yeah. we have a, a ve- we've had Formula One in a you know the the same sort of arrangement for a very long time. This could add something else to it um, from a development point of view. It adds a new dimension for the engineers to overcome new problems. Uh, as a, an engineer yourself, you know you you want to add a problem into there so that you can solve it uh, and. Um, you know, this is this is something that that I think would excite the, the the people that are not excited anymore within Formula One. Shaking heads from the young American here. Uh, no, no, I'm I'm imagining I'm going back to the glory days of, of the Williams and just <laughs> thinking of simple things like managing weight transfer differently. I'm also kind of laughing because I think it was it was it 2008 2009 that you had that. Uh, technical working group to solve the problem of overtaking and their actual suggestion was for a movable front wing to solve that problem yeah how how does it it solve it how does it solve it it didn't we had it in 2009 and 2010 and then it got abandoned because it didn't really work we had a movable front wing in 2009 yes remind remind me how that worked and looked The, the the upper flap of the front wing was able to be moved twice yeah. per lap by the driver. I, I have no memory of that whatsoever. Did that? And not... that's part of the reason why it didn't work. Yeah, so it's not particularly memorable. But is that like, did they throw the baby out with the bathwater? Was there a core idea there? I, I think fundamentally there was an idea there. Uh, 
However, because we had the the Y two fifty vortex, I know it's your favourite. Yeah, that's my favourite vortex. That is Y two K vortex. That that kind of did put a spanner in the works. Mm. Uh, sorry, spanners, no, throw you in the works. Roger, there. Roger, Roger. Um, I think that was probably the reason we, why it wasn't as successful as it should have been, and kind of got chucked out quite quickly. However a lot of the drivers were using it to rebalance the car as well. So, you know, it became a tool for the drivers in some respects into certain corners, but it wasn't really ever that helpful because they only could do it twice twice a lap. And twice a lap means, oh, well, I've, I've moved it once and now it's in a position I don't want it in, so I'll move it back to the <laughs> position it. it was in before. Uh, and, that, and that was it kind of thing. So uh, obviously we had DRS come off the back of it, which was more successful uh, than... The, the movable front flat but again it's there was a lot of money spent developing those those concepts to make that work as well and i think there was a lot of formula one engineers that were annoyed at the fact that they'd had to construct certain front wing end plate designs to make it work and then mm-hmm. it just suddenly went away as you would be but then then i'm suddenly thinking like if we really had the ability to manipulate the front wing I mean, with whatever parameters you initially design it for in terms of flaps and main planes. But you could theoretically then just have a single front wing that's adjustable that could cover everything from Monza to uh, Monaco. That sounds like a Speedway front wing. Wouldn't that be wild? Mm. I have a future thing that's kind of along these lines, something fundamentally different, especially as we move more towards electric stuff. Could we have four independently driven wheels? So each one's got its own little electric motor and, like, you can basically turn 90 degrees. Is that stupid? Like, you're both laughing. How dumb is that? Uh, That's literally torque vectoring. Yeah. (laughs) Is that good? I don't know. What you said didn't clarify whether what I said was stupid or not. Look, it can be done. It can be done? It can can be done... uh... But aren't we talking about Formula One and not Formula E here? Is there going to be a difference long term? They're going to merge, aren't they? They have to at some point. Well, I'd hope it's in a distant future (laughs) um, based on how we're currently set up in Formula One versus how we're currently set up in Formula E. But yeah, at some point, I guess there must be some kind of of convergence. So hang on. So you're allowed to turn the cars into Optimus Prime, but I'm not allowed to have independently driven wheels or even just like as an assist for for grip or whatever you know you have your main engine driving the rear wheels and then you've got little motors driving the front wheels uh world endurance championship had that with the lmp1s i believe get in i'm a visionary or i nicked it from lmp1 i can't remember which but part of the driver's skill in formula one has always been it's fundamentally a rear wheel drive driven formula and as as that is a fact, it is even cashiered taking energy off the front axle, not even using it on the front axle, because they're so worried about, uh, what would you call it, branding, Summers? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it is rear-wheel drive. Formula One has always, well, not always, but fundamentally, <laughs> we're, we're, we're a rear-wheel drive series, right. aren't we? So. Uh, to to suddenly depart from that, I, I think then you you're treading into different waters. But it, it's it is a possibility, Spanish. You are from an engineering point of view, it's possible. 
Okay. If it's Formula One, I'm not sure on that level because it was talked about as well. Was it? Okay, um, so not so in dumb. Framing the, the next set, set of regulations. Yeah. So there's a battle here between wanting to make Formula One a, a place of engineering excellence and of pushing and driving technology forward, maybe even being a, a leader in technology rather than a technology taker. But then the other side of the coin is, why not just strip it back? Like if the racing is really important, you could still challenge the engineers by giving them less to work with, by taking away a lot of those toys. The best engineers would still produce the best car, but at less cost and with smaller gaps. So I say, let's go the other way. Let's go caveman. Take the engines out. Have them Fred Flintstone legs at the bottom of the ground mat. That's the other philosophy they could go down with the regs. Uh, yeah, we call that IndyCar, I think. Right. Or Super Formula, maybe. No, uh, the, the engineers that are there now would probably disagree with you about simplifying the sport even more. I, I think we're beginning to get to a limit for certain engineers as, as to whether or not they'll bother to stick around because they're more engaging complex problems for them to solve elsewhere. The problem yep. you have, and I think, you know, this is what we are essentially talking about, part of what we define Formula One as is having way too much horsepower for the rear axle and requiring driver skill to manage it. And then the other problem is we want to, without bankrupting every team in the sport, give the engineers as much creativity and freedom as possible to help the drivers manage that problem. And and it is a pendulum and it gets pushed back and forth. Comment, yeah, Mr. I mean, Summerfield. That- yeah, that that's obviously um, the problem from an engineering point of view. The teams want to be involved in an engineering project, which is what Formula One offers, aside from filtering a huge amount of money out of their parent companies as well along the way uh, for tax purposes, perhaps. <laughs> but that fundamentally, that's what these these players are here for. You know, they, they want the engineering challenge alongside the sporting aspect that goes with it. And it's a fine line that has to be trod by every single part of the, the Formula One community as a whole. And sometimes we get it right because the regulations permit that. And other times we don't get it right. And unfortunately, you know, the battle between uh, the engineering side and the sporting side just rub up against one another. So uh, I think it's always going to be a bit of a dance between the two. Um, At the moment, I think we're kind of in some of that middle ground, but we do perhaps need a little bit of a shift towards the sporting side to engage uh, a more competitive grid. Okay, the show is effectively over in so much as that is the tech content that we wanted to talk about. And we will give Matt another opportunity to come in with his his tire chat. Like, don't worry. But now I want to get to meet the panel. And this is non-canon. This is optional. You can opt out. If you want to go, go click the links in the show notes below. Uh, look at me. Yeah, put your hand up at the back of the class if you if you need to leave early. But go and follow summers at summers f1 on twitter and matt at matt pt 55 on twitter as well or on x and um and make sure you follow them because they've got great content most of the time but this is the meet the panel segment so i can highlight the not so great content that matthew summerfield does put on twitter which is very much golf related so i want to start 
by talking to Matthew Summerfield about your obsession because you are you are obsessed with golf and I I am so jealous I had to pack in golf under under spousal pressure around the birth of our second child no when my daughter was born that's it. it that was just the last straw I lost my gaming had a little gaming room which she needed just to sleep in that was lame and the time I would spend on the golf course built up a resentment when I came home. It wasn't worth it. But you're obsessed with it, Summers, and you're out there like having this resurgence, this second life in golf. And I'm happy to see you happy and uh, and happy to see your scores coming down on, on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, it's been a bit of a journey, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I played when I was a lot younger, when I was a teenager, and kind of fell out of love with it. And obviously life takes over and you end up yeah. doing Formula One stuff and that takes up a lot of your time. But uh, got to a point where COVID came along and obviously that changed things and that's where I got back into golf. Um, and as you say, I've, I'm not obsessed. Yes, you are. Hang on, can we just, let's take a vote. Um, um, hands up on the panel if Summers is obsessed with golf. As my hand's gone up. And Trump, Trumpet's hand is going up as well. So yes, unfortunately, you, you, you've lost that one. Uh, why? Why do you think you're not obsessed? Like, I, and I'm, I don't think it's even a bad thing. Like, because I've seen the improvement as well from the stats, and I caught you, and I had a round with you during your like improvement learning phase, and you were taking the learning very, very seriously to the point like each putt took about five minutes as you were lining up the ball and taking your stance and everything. I think that you over-egg how long it was taking Eight for me to do those minutes per putts. putt. <laughs> no, 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 no. Anyway, I actually he... messaged him before that round and explained that of all the things that would drive you nuts, taking forever over putts was the thing that <laughs> oh, right, sent so you, you over the edge. You egged him on. Because I know I'm going to miss anyway, but you, you had so much hope in your eyes with every putt. <laughs> well, yeah, but that was the foundation for my improvements. You know, that's, I mean... To put it into yeah. context, I've gone from a 25.3 handicap to a 10.5. That's, that's no that's small amazing. feat in the space no, of no, time. No, 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 no. Go ahead. It. Mention your short game handicap now. <laughs> What's uh, no, it's not a short game handicap, but my strokes gained for short game is very, very good. Let's put it like past scratch level, right. uh, according to Arcos. So scratch that's... means you play like you don't need a handicap score. So that's the level you need to be to enter proper competitions so that golf is frustrating like we all play golf here i think matt, matt plays golf as well uh, but i i see golf as two very distinct games so you've got off the tee in the fairway and then the getting onto the green and getting into the pointlessly small hole so i can and uh, when my drive is in you know in practice not when i played you i hadn't played for about three or four years um, but normally my whole thing was i could i could dump the ball 250 yards, which is more than most people who tip up at a tee. Uh, and I, I could I could swing the big stick, but when it got to the green, I just felt like it was impossible. I think golf would be better if the hole was the size of like a, a garbage bin, a dustbin. Putting should be a completely different game for like 100-year-old people. So you want a foot golf hole on yeah. the golf course. Do you know, a lot of golf courses, now the pinch and putts have been replaced with foot golf. And that's happened at my local. I wanted to take my kid for a, a pitch and putt. And they're like, oh, no, it's foot golf now. Yeah, I mean, it's a growing sport, isn't it? So um, I think that from a shared point of view in terms of property, that's probably a good thing. Yeah. Um, just opens things up to a, a different age range as well. You know, golf is a sport that is generally played by the older generation, let's say. Yeah. 
I actually played a course one time uh, with my daughter uh, that did have manhole size nice. holes for her to putt at. I still had to putt them at the teeny tiny holes. But but those courses exist. You can take I your like kids that. to with like giant holes for them to putt the ball into. It's fantastic. Well, it's not- I, I actually cheated and used hers. Yeah, it's not even for the kids, Summers. That would be less frustrating. We could play around together and you wouldn't have to wait for my eight putts per hole. I can just put it into the bin-shaped hole. Um, But what I love about you and your golf, Summers, is because it would come as no surprise to anyone, like you took a very analytical approach to your improvement. Yeah, I mean, highly data-driven. From a strokes game point of view, I run a spreadsheet, believe it or not, with every single round that I've ever had. I do uh, believe you. That spreadsheet. No one, no one is sitting at home going, oh, "I can't believe that." <laughs> Everyone believes it. My glimpse tracker, as I call it, it gives me hope that I could possibly play to that level, and I think it's a big part of my improvement. Um, but as you say, yeah, data's been a, a, a big part. I'm currently uh, re-engaging in a speed training uh, regimen uh, because as you get older, you lose speed, and uh, that means you lose distance, and obviously. I'm not the most sprightly person anymore, although my <laughs> brain thinks it is. How my old body are you, Summers? Agree. How old uh, are you? Forty-two. So you're still the youngest person on this panel, sadly. But yeah, I can I can relate to the, to you. Uh, I went swimming today, and uh, I normally like to swim for an hour. After twenty-five minutes, my knee it sent a, a polite request to to knock things on the head, which I ignored. And after forty minutes, it was like a demand. It's like no, we we have had enough today we we will stop for the day so are you, are you you're not physically limited at golf surely I, I do have issues sometimes with my back um, oh yeah me too but that's an old injury that reoccurs and same with a knee injury but you know that's just life isn't it and you mm. I, I i am trying to become fitter and uh, oh so you're doing some cardio you're getting some cardio yeah, yeah. going yeah, I'm using, you know, yoga and stretching and all that sort of good stuff to try to improve my body for golf. <laughs> Nothing else. Um, but that's good. That's good to know you're in yoga. Why don't we why don't we get any uh, you know, risque yoga poses on your Twitter instead of just your golf shots? That's what I'm looking forward to next. So Nobody wants yoga. to see that. But Nobody wants to see that. Email feedback at mistake but no don't 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 <laughs> with subject line yoga poses. See, I can't believe you're asking him about the new golf balls that are being restricted for distance. Oh, yeah. No, I always wondered about that because golf courses take up so much land. And I think this seems like a sensible approach. So professional golf is now making the standard golf ball less long hittable. Do you approve? Well, it's not coming in straight away. There is a a lead time before we see that golf ball appear. Um, However... I do understand where they're coming from because pros themselves are getting longer. You know, the the average di- driving distance has gone up. I think it's by about 15 yards in the past decade. So it doesn't sound like a lot, but obviously it does have an impact on how far the, 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 uh, the individuals are driving the ball. And that is average. So the long- longest hitters are obviously hitting, hitting it much further. Yeah. I mean, you only have to think of DeChambeau or Rory McIlroy to... To, to think about long hitters uh, and there's there's others obviously that are coming out of the woodwork now which could go just as far as those guys so yeah I mean I understand where they're coming from but from uh, an amateur level point of view we need less distance take you know because we don't hit it that far 
And this is going to be a global thing where everybody mm. is going to be playing those golf balls because that's what the RNA and the USGA have decided. Um, and it will have an impact on amateurs, obviously not as large an impact as, as the pros, but it will have an impact. And we need more distance, not, not less. I have to say I've always been at this kind of disadvantage because there's two factors here, right? A, I'm cheap, so I, I only go for like the pond balls that have been fished out of the of lakes and people sell them on eBay. And the other thing is, because of my slice, I lose maybe five or six golf balls around. So I can't afford the the like your tighter list anyway. So I've always been at this disadvantage. So yes, bring on uh, the less good golf balls. But uh, Summers, have you considered setting up like um, a, a Summers Golf Twitter? Because you, I heard that you and Matt were planning a, a golf walk around podcast at one point. Uh, we've talked about having a podcast um we've talked about several things i have thought i have actually got a separate twitter account for for golf um have you i've Where got is it? i've got i've got a youtube channel have for golf well. what, what's the yeah. twi- what's the twitter tell us that we'll link it in the show notes as well I, I can't i can't remember i never post their spanners because what's the point in having all these different accounts well then we well, just have one well then why would we in that don't follow summers on his golf account right I'm glad we've got an insight I've got, into your soul. I've got, a YouTube, I've, I've got a YouTube channel. I'll give you the link for okay, that. Okay, good. Go and follow Summers Pe- people, Golf. People can watch me play golf. There you go. That'll, that'll get them involved. And if the demand is high enough, also watch him doing uh, yoga. I, You know, it might sound like I've just zoned in on Summers Golf in his life and I've not taken an interest in any other aspect of his life. But trust me, it is very much all about golf at the moment. We have just dived in and grabbed his soul. And if we were going to try and hold the soul of a freelance musician like Matt Trumpets is, we would probably need a, a whiskey glass. Now, there are some people out there who might be confused as to why I call you Matt Two Rumpets, but it is actually just because I'm unimaginative of giving out nicknames and you played trumpet and I wasn't sure whether on the first shows whether you wanted me to use your surname So and I, and I couldn't remember it. So I just said Matt yeah. Trumpets. But you're an actual trumpet player for money. And, and yes. like in the same way that my wife is a, you know, a working musician, most musicians have to teach around that. But it's so strange being a musician that you have to be so good, work so hard, practice so much, beat off a lot of competition to earn. Actually, it's relatively... Barely anything. But relatively yes. little money. Yes. To bring so much joy, like everybody wants music all the time. It's got to be one of the most and least rewarding avenues of, of profession that there are. Yeah, well, I mean, at its best, you're, you are at the absolute limit of your mind and body's ability to do something. You are 100% engaged. And, and there's, when you get there, when you, like, you hit that point, uh, there's nothing better. Uh, there's it's it's just it's magic. It only happens. It's, it's a very rare occurrence. Most of the time, yeah. Like like we talk about Formula One. I love this. Most of the time, it's like a Grand Prix. You're just managing. <laughs> yes, you're managing your resources to to make the notes to make the thing happen. But every now and then, you just pick up the horn and you're like, oh, everything just works. And when you combine that uh, with a good group or in front of a huge audience, like, you know, tens of thousands of people, it's just, it, it's wild. It, it's, I can't even describe the, 
uh, the feeling of it. Wait, like how many how people? How rewarding it is how many to be people? able to do that. Why? Tens of thousands. When have you played tens of thousands of people? Um, I think the biggest audience I ever played for was at the uh, the U.S. Open, you know, the um, the tennis tournament, the U.S. Open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I played at the, they have a standard. They do a musical performance before the women's final. And uh, I performed it that one year. It was the year of, um, oh, what was the hurricane in New Orleans that drowned it. Um, and, and I remember this because they actually changed the music. Uh, Adina Menzel was there, she sang. And uh, it started out with um, sort of a, uh, when the Saints go marching in and kind of like a tops fade. And uh, it was aired live on CBS. So I was playing for, I don't know, hundreds of millions, if not close to a billion people who were watching. Nice. That. Wow. That, that, I mean, that is Center proper. court. <laughs> Center court. Yeah. That is like, that's proper. 2005. Katrina. That was the hurricane. Yeah. Yeah. So like, that is like proper, like, I'm trying to explain to people, you're not just somebody who like has learned to play the trumpet and plays at home. Like you're a proper, proper trumpet player and yeah, then no I, I went to i went to conservatory in fact one of my wait, favorites wait, explain stories. that explain that you can't just go past that you went to conservatory what? that's like uh it's like a finishing school for musicians it's where you go if you want to be a professional musician okay so we I went are to school of music right so it's a posh music school well it's not it's posh but it's it's what you know because one of the things we do talk about is meritocracy a lot and and advantage aside in terms of having lessons and stuff like that uh when you show up to audition for a place like Manhattan School, I played for uh, the principal trumpet of the New York Philharmonic, uh, the guy who played it for like 35 years, William Vacchiano, current principal of the Met at the time, Mel Broyles, who played over 40 years as principal trumpet, and so on and so forth, down the line of national and internationally renowned musicians. And you just walk in and they say, okay play something for us. And you say, okay. And you play it. And they say, play this. And you say, okay. And they say, play that. And you do that. And you do one more. And they say, okay, thank you very much. And then you're either in or you're out. Mm. And I think they admitted 12 people the year I got into Manhattan school out of, I don't know, around 800 people who applied. I don't know. It was pretty long odds. And I, I still can't quite believe <laughs> that I played well enough to get in. It surprised me a great deal. But it, it just... So, so when you go there, it's your life is about music. You play an orchestra, you take lessons, you go to classes, music theory, music history. It's literally, you spend those years of your life just fully immersed in doing music. Mm. And then you get out and you have to make money. So, you know, <laughs> you do whatever you can. But it's just like, like Summers, you've seen, you know, these guys at a karting event, you know, and it just makes the whole room turn and go and just for the amount of joy it brings it is just such an undervalued uh, profession and the reason i try and sort of kind of big up like your background to people listening is like for example at the karting event everyone knows oh you play trumpet oh you get your trumpet out as soon as like you and and my wife start you know playing but the the trumpet is so striking that people are like oh oh no he play plays the trumpet anyone can buy a trumpet and press the buttons I, it's interesting because, it, like, is with anything. I think you you can sort of lose perspective on on yourself. Like, I I I know what I'm good at. I I know what advantage. I, I know what I was really good at. What I am really good at. I know the groups that I play with that I've always enjoyed playing with. The stuff that I like to do. 
but every now and then, like when I just pick something up and and play, and 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 you just see the looks on people's faces, you're like, oh yeah, right, yeah, this is actually something that <laughs> that, that people are impressed by. That that it, it's because it, it is, you know, it, it's a skill that's easily replicated electronically. You know, I, I suspect a lot of people would have a hard time telling the difference listening to a recording if it was synth patches or real life instruments. But when you, you pull an instrument out and you play right in front of somebody, they're like, oh, oh, I get the difference now. And, and it, it can be pretty dramatic. I've had some amazing nights playing with amazing, I mean, truly amazing, uh, amazing musicians. Um, the group that I play with now that, you know, that I've, I've, I'm flogging on the show about the, the Scott Orchestra, New York City Scott Orchestra. Some of the best musicians I've ever played, like it literally, I, I sit there and I can't believe they're like, oh yeah, you're a part of this too. It, it's an amazing and, and fun group. But I, I will end with, I don't know, um, I, I went to a Wynton Marsalis masterclass and um, he talked about his first year when he signed all of his contracts and he was flying all over the world and staying in these hotels. And he's like, he's like, yeah, he says, but ask me how much money I actually made that year. <laughs> he's like, he says, I didn't really make that much money. He says, but I never let anyone think <laughs> that I didn't, yep. which I kind of love. But I, I remember playing, uh, I, I did a stint with the Fork Tops back in the 90s where I would, they would pick me up when they came to the Northeast. They had three trumpets. They had like a 10 horn section. And, and I, would, I would play third trumpet with them because I was friends with the guy who played second trumpet, who was friends with the guy who contracted the orchestra, which is also kind of how it works in music. But I remember playing up at a casino. They had like this round gaming floor and in the very center of it, um, they had the stage where we were performing. And, and the first night we played, um, we played, we had a sound check, we had a rehearsal. So I got there, there was nobody there, went up on stage, played, just, you know, packed audience. But the second night it was just, you know, show up an hour before the show. And so I show up and I got my little credentials and do the, you know, park my beater car with the, <laughs> and, and, uh, walk in and there's this huge line all the way to the edge of the gaming floor and beyond double line. I walk all the way up to the front of it. And I realize that it's the line to get in to see our show. And I said about our show, I mean, the four tops, <laughs> I, they, they could have cared less about me. There's 20 trumpet players who could have been me right there. It just happened to be me. And there are these two giant guys in a red velvet rope. And one of them looked up at me, saw my credentials and said, in you go, sir, and opened that velvet rope. And I got to walk in. I thought, man, this is it. This is the highlight of my career. Just getting <laughs> to walk past all these people and get in there. Yeah. It wasn't the only highlight of my career. But no, that's yeah, the you only get some highlight. magic moments like that. And it's really special. It's hard to beat. This is it. You know, you've chosen sometimes in, in your life, in your career, you can choose the glory or, or you can choose the money. So, for example, a lot of F1 engineers, they could easily earn more money like working in the defense industry. There's a yeah. lot of crossover between especially like the aerodynamicists there. And uh, so, like, having worked in the defense industry, there's loads of guys who go, oh, yeah, no, that's my mate works for such and such a team. Oh, why didn't you go and do something like that? Oh, you know, you know, paying bills and and eating food but you know really matt you've messed up you know you look at the two of us and you could have been a freelance bum presenter 
or a F1 tech journalist and just be raking in the million summers. I, I assume being an F1 tech journalist is is one of the wealthiest trades on earth. Oh, yeah, of course it is. Yeah. 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 I'm absolutely rolling in it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, but this is it. You two are in, both of you, in underappreciated art forms as well, I think. And I hope, though, that the patrons and the panellists and the uh, listeners out there will appreciate getting to know these guys a little bit more. Click all the links and follow them in the show notes below. And if you think this winter nonsense we're providing you is of value, why not consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash missed apex. We have plans afoot for the rest of the off season. We have Uncle Steve, Steve Amy, teaming up with Christian Pedersen to do the history of F1 broadcasting and the future of F1 broadcasting. And there's plenty of time to get the rest of the panel in as well. But some medium exciting news, if you're into Formula E, look out on Monday, look out on my social media, you should be following me anyway. I'm the best one. Uh, at Spanners Ready and Richard Ready on all the platforms. Look out for our brand new Formula E podcast that is going to be launched just in time for the start of the season. So Monday evening, that Formula E podcast will be out. But until we see you next, work hard, be kind and have fun. This was Missed Apex Podcast. <laughs>
This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.